Brothers and sisters in Christ, it's a great joy to be with you once again, uh, especially as we come under the life-giving authority of God's word together. And uh, to that end, I'd like to ask us to look in Luke's gospel and the seventh chapter for our hearing of God's word today. The uh, first ten verses of Luke's gospel. will be our chief interest this morning. Luke chapter 7, the first 10 verses. And now, friends, as we hear the word of God, let us remember that these are indeed the words of the living God who, to be sure, used human instruments, human servants, in the writing and preservation of his word. But throughout, this remains, as it is this very day, this very morning, the word of the living God. Let us hear him. After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Ever blessed and faithful God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is your word, and we are your people. And in your word you have promised to bless your people as you are pleased by your most Holy Spirit to make this word fruitful in the hearts of humble, obedient hearers. And so we pray. For the sake of the great name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would graciously grant us hearts that hear in order to obey, 
and which rejoice at the word of our King, in whose name we ask this. Amen. There are a few things that uh, theologians love to do. One is to answer almost every question with yes and no. Or it depends what you mean. Another thing that theologians love, and this is hardly unique to theologians, is when something truly complex and rich and involved with perhaps moving parts can be simplified very succinctly without losing the depth and wonder of the whole picture. One of the great theologians of the early church, Gregory the Great, said this about the word of God itself. He said, Scripture is like a river, broad and deep, shallow enough here for the lamb to go wading, but deep enough there for the elephant to swim. He said that in his sermons on Job, and if there is any book of the Bible where we need some shallow pieces, some shallow regions, it would be the book of Job. Plenty of depth there. And in fact, this is a line which has been repeated and reused throughout the history of the church. Sometimes the lamb is a child, shallow enough for a child to paddle in, deep enough for an elephant to swim in. Uh, the images sometimes change. Certainly the, the men are, uh, attributed uh, this quote sometimes change as well. The point doesn't, and the point is a very helpful sound one. So what would a lamb or a child paddling at the shore, playing in the water, in the sand, without risk of drowning because it's so shallow. What would a child need to get from this passage to hear it well in its, in its beautiful simplicity? And then what would everyone else, who could maybe handle another foot of water or two, what would, the, what would everyone else need not to miss in this very passage, without at the same time suggesting it's not there if you simply unpack that simple truth. Well, the simple message of our passage, and I'm, and I'm asking all of our children to pay special attention now, the simple truth of our passage is caught up with what this centurion, we'll say something about him shortly, what this centurion says, which makes Jesus amazed. One of the very few times Jesus has ever said to be amazed. Something that this man says, this man who asks Jesus to heal someone very, very important to him, someone for whom he cares a great deal. Something this man says to Jesus makes Jesus say, and that, that's what faith looks like. What is it that this man says? Very simply, it's when the man says, just say the word. Just say the word where you are, and that will be enough. So for our youngest among us today, for our children, this is maybe what you want to remember at lunch today when you're asked, what was that sermon about? 
What we want to remember is that Jesus is simply saying to all of these people around him, the crowds, when he turns to them in amazement and says, now that's what faith looks like. What he is simply saying is that real Christian and saving faith is faith that takes Jesus at his word. And so truly, so fully trusts in that word that we need nothing more. Now, what is the bigger world of beauty and wonder and splendor to which that little observation belongs? This is a lot like what we just did in confessing the words of the Apostles' Creed. Every little line, every expression, every phrase, every clause is very simply expressed. But oh, is there not a world of depth and riches at work of understanding awaiting us if we were to do a deep dive in any one of those words, in any one of those expressions. And yet we don't lose any of the beauty of its simplicity and the power of its simplicity. Isn't this much like how poetry works so powerfully? This is the artistically turned phrase which gives far more than it suggests on the front end if you have the patience to listen for it and to look for it and are ready for it. What's the large, beautiful world to which these simple observations belong? Well, can we note, first of all, how breathtakingly important this very story would be and was as a story of profound personal vested interest for Gentiles when Luke writes this. You remember that Luke is writing in his gospel what we could call part one of a part two work. Luke's gospel is part one, and then part two is what we call the Acts of the Apostle, coming right after the gospel of John. That's the second part, and and Luke tells us at the beginning of Acts in chapter one, he is now going to speak of the things Jesus continued to do as the ascended one. In the gospel, he begins a story that goes as far as the early generations of the church in Acts. And what is one of the great themes in Acts? It's this simplicity of the nature of our response to the gospel as a matter of faith. Isn't it Luke that tells us over and over again in Acts that when the Gentiles heard the gospel, they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and were saved. That simplicity, powerful and beautiful, of how the gospel goes to the world in the book of Acts where the Gentiles, those who did not receive it in their youth, those who don't have the deep pedigree that the Jews enjoy of hearing this word generation by generation, the Gentiles who are hearing the gospel for the first time, they come to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They belong wholly to him. They know true life and that eternal because they believe the word that reaches them. Well, think about that as we're hearing now Luke talk about this Gentile, a centurion. And remember that Luke himself is a Gentile as well, it would appear. So this is also meaningful for him. But he's also telling us something about what it's going to look like. Remember what part two of his work will sound like. What it's going to look like for the promise of Jesus to prove true. When the gospel goes to the world, the church will spread as well. How? Because people will believe the word they hear. And though Jesus will ascend into the heavenlies bodily and therefore be removed from sight, that will not mean people will no longer believe in him. 
He will be removed from sight, but not removed from reality. And his word will abide where he has returned to the Father as the incarnate one. And where his word goes, those who hear the word with faith will recognize this is no ordinary word. This is the word of the true king. And he gives me this word to believe unto salvation. And they will believe the word having only his word and not his physical presence. And having that word will prove to be enough. And so it has been. Generation after generation of the story of God growing his church throughout the world and throughout history is the story, of course, of those who, like you and me, have bowed the knee before one we cannot see, but whose word we trust because it is his word. And in that way, Luke is saying, the centurion's faith is yours too. So in a special way, he is telling us a story of what ordinary Christian faith looks like. In the overall story of the church, we're talking about an overwhelming majority of real Christians who are Christians because they've had to believe a word without seeing the physical Jesus there with them. This is what ordinary Christian faith looks like. What an interest we have then in what Luke is saying here about the centurion. What a significant story. Of course, this is also happening right after Jesus has finished the so-called Sermon on the Plain. Luke's apparent version of what Matthew has as a Sermon on the Mount. Very much similar material at least. So after finishing all those sayings about the meek and about uh, the pure in heart and about real obedience to Torah, real obedience to God's law, real obedience to his command, Jesus has finished all of this and the very next thing Luke tells us is this story. As if to say, okay, now what are you going to do with that sermon? Are you going to believe this word? This is what it would look like to do so, he's telling us. Watch this centurion. Now Luke doesn't say that this Gentile military officer, the centurion, who would ordinarily be responsible for about a hundred people under him, that number would change uh, over the years, but approximately a hundred people would be answering to the centurion. It's where his name comes from. Uh, Luke doesn't say that the Gentile officer saw Jesus. Instead, he tells us that he approaches Jesus by way of others, intermediaries. And what a story of intermediaries it is. Um, his sermon now ended, Jesus has returned to Capernaum. And Luke tells us of this centurion who has a sick servant, a sick slave. Um, now, this slave, this servant, Luke wants us to understand, is precious to the centurion. This is not to the extent one might know this is possible. This is not merely an employee for an employer who is nothing more than that. This is not merely a slave as it was often a dark reality in the first century owned by a master and potentially abused and misused. That was often uh, common enough. That's not our situation here. We're talking about a centurion who as we will see is regarded by the Jews of his day as a pious man and who cares for this servant in his household, presumably. Cares for him with a special degree of care. What's, what's, what's being said here almost suggests that this is like a father's love for his son, his own child, as it were, is at death's door, and there's an urgency and a zeal to find a solution. It's a way of indicating just how precious this servant is to the centurion. And this centurion 
caring in this way uh, for, uh, for this servant, uh, cares for him where the slave is at the point of death, Luke tells us. And this slave who was dear to him and now at the point of death, death moves the centurion to action. Now, importantly, a centurion was of necessity somebody who would be regarded as a man of fortitude and integrity. They had a great deal of responsibility. Uh, they had to be a man of character, uh, somebody who was willing to do the hard thing, but not overzealous in doing it. Someone who had self-control and who was reputed uh, to have self-control and to use it properly. In this case, we're talking about a man of character who is recognized as such, not only by the Romans in a military context, but also by the Jews of the first century. He is a Gentile, pro probably a Roman, uh, marshaled to serve with the forces of Herod Antipas. Um, he is undoubtedly humane, appears to be quite wealthy, and universally regarded as pious. This centurion here is about Jesus. Now, we don't know what he heard exactly, do we? But he must have heard enough to lead him to think, this is the solution to my problem. There's something about this Jesus. And we, he may have heard a great deal, in fact, about this Jesus. But it must have included something about how Jesus performs miracles of healing, how he cures people, uh, even though every story that would come about Jesus the healer would include other material. And we know that was part of the picture before very long at all in this very story. So, having heard some things about this Jesus, here's where the really interesting stuff begins. All right, the centurion hears about Jesus, and we read that he sent some Jewish elders, Jewish elders, with a request that Jesus would come, that is, come to his own home, and heal his beloved sick servant, his slave. Now, why? Would a centurion be able to command Jewish elders in this way? Well, we learn something of why this is the case in what these elders say to Jesus. Verse 4, And when they came to Jesus, they, these Jewish elders, pleaded with Jesus earnestly saying this, he, that is the centurion, is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Basically these men are saying, these Jewish elders are saying, this is no ordinary centurion. Now that said, centurions are mentioned actually quite often, often enough in the New Testament, in the Gospels. And yet there's never a negative reference to them. They are only positively characterized one way or another. But nothing that compares to the way Jesus will praise this centurion. All that being true, this is still no ordinary centurion. Uh, the elders argue that this centurion, and this is key language for the story, they say this centurion is worthy to have Jesus help this man is worthy. Then he gives some reasons. This centurion has goodwill for the conquered people, the Israelites, the Jews. In fact, he loves our nation. A Gentile who loves 
The Jews as a people? How exceptional must this be? And he has acted upon that goodwill and his love for our nation by assisting local worship. How? He built our synagogue, these elders say. Which is to say, this man is wealthy enough to do this, but also has the heart to do this. He funds the construction of a Jewish synagogue. Now, some of this is suggesting, as many have, have noted, that he may have been what's called a God-fearer. Uh, these were people who were very pious, especially in our first century context, uh, as Gentiles, and, and basically went as far as you can go into the Jewish faith without becoming circumcised. And the reasons for that varied. But in most respects, these are people who know the Torah, know the law, and are present for a lot of the things the Jews would do in their cultists, in their sacrifices, their offerings, in their daily prayers. They are there, and they believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they don't go as far as becoming full proselytes by going the route of circumcision. A lot of things about this centurion suggest he's one of these God-fearers. In the New Testament, this whole group proves to be a very fertile group for receiving the gospel uh, of, of Jesus Christ in whom you belong to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob without having to become circumcised. Uh, perhaps predictably so. But this is a God-fearer, apparently, although we can't be certain, who loves the Jewish people enough not only to uh, do good things and show goodwill, but he has sacrificed for them. He has built them a synagogue, even though he can't belong to it wholly. And the Jewish elders say, and so he is worthy of your help. Not surprisingly, this very passage was one of the ones used in the ancient church by the groups called the Pelagians, and later the semi-Pelagians, their cousins. Not quite cousins. Um, Pelagians who used to argue a very dangerous heresy. And that is that when God's grace meets you, it's because there's some natural, inherent receptivity in your heart, some natural goodness in your heart that God's grace meets, and that combination is good news for you because it means salvation. There's some natural inherent worthiness to some degree that God in his gospel meets you with. His grace combined with your natural dignity gives us the good result of your salvation. This is what saving grace looks like. That is exactly the opposite of Luke's point and Jesus's, but we have to keep reading the story to see why. But we should at least take away this much so far. These Jewish leaders, Jewish elders, think the world of this man... Now, to be sure, they have been personally helped by him and his generosity. But they think the world of him, and they think that Jesus needs to know this is not your ordinary centurion. This is someone who is worthy of your special attention and your work. Jesus responds to this request with an action, no words. We read simply in verse 6, he went with them. Apparently, Jesus heard enough. Let's go help the man. Now, on his way to the centurion's house, the centurion sends another delegation, a second group. These are not Jewish elders. These are now his friends. Now, we can imagine the scene in between delegation one and delegation two. As the first delegation of Jewish elders are sent, presumably because he knows the centurion, Jesus is a Jew. 
And so Jewish elders are sent in respect for Jew Jesus' Jewishness. Now as they are gone and on their way, he's looking at his servant over to the side who's on the very precipice of death itself. His heart is breaking. He's talking with his friends about the whole situation. As they continue talking, the friends are telling you more and more of what they have heard of Jesus of Nazareth. The hope they have that Jesus is going to be helpful. And he's talking with them. They're comforting him. And in the back and forth exchange, it occurs to the centurion, he should not come here. It would be inappropriate for a Jew to come into a Gentile's house. I should show respect for him as a Jew, remembering that I'm a Gentile and this is a Gentile house. I should observe the Jewish customs and the Jewish concerns here. I should make sure he knows he doesn't have to come into my house and defile himself. Friends, go tell him. He doesn't have to do that. If he would just say it, I believe it. The first request was come. The second one is don't, don't come. You don't have to. Just say the word. The centurion's message through this second delegation is really where the heart of Luke's message is. Here's what the centurion sends, uh, says through his friends. Let's hear these words, shall we, very carefully. Lord, do not trouble yourself, because I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, that last part of what he says might sound a little arrogant, when in fact it's exactly the opposite. The centurion knows who he is. He, he, he's sent a second delegation now. He knows what power he has. Uh, he knows that in the chain of command and the Roman military uh, infrastructure, he's in a position of authority, and, and he knows from experience what it's like to say something and it's done. He sent the Jewish elders who went voluntarily, not with marching orders, because they loved the man. He sent his friends who loved him, and they went apparently with no marching orders either, except give this message if you would. But he is a man who in the course of his life and the nature of his service, nature of his vocation, he's in a position of authority. He knows how authority works. He knows authority works at least this way. When he needs something, when he wants something, he says it, and the people responsible do it. He knows what it's like to be in that position. Do you know anybody in that position? Have you yourself ever been in such a position? Not long ago, I was invited to a, a big dinner and at this event, I discovered two friends of mine I did not know would be there and I had not seen in nearly 20 years. And I was delighted as can be to see them and then sit down at a table with them, only to have uh, one of the senior uh, people at the event come up to me, tap me on the shoulder and says, and said, we really need you to sit over there at a front table. And the first reason given is because that's where the bishop will be. And so I head in that direction. On my way, the bishop himself meets me and says, I, I need you to sit at that front table because that's also where the, that's where the archbishop will be. 
And so when I get to the table, then I hear these same men tell me, we really needed you to be at this table because this is where then they refer to some extremely important, highly influential, well-known man who was coming to this dinner but was held up a little bit by the private jet that he was on, not yet making its way to the uh, airport and having his driver take him to the table. And I'm sitting there thinking about all of these gradations and how this has all worked out, thinking it would kind of be nice to sit with my friends I haven't seen in 20-something years. But these were, these were in different contexts, in a different world. This was a, a context in which certain people are used to having certain recognized delegated authorities that looks like this is what we need and that's, that's what happens. You have this in your workplace and it's a good thing. You have this in other contexts of life, in the home, and other places, it's a good thing where there is someone who has the responsibility, sometimes more than one person who has the responsibility, not to dictate and direct, but to ensure everyone knows how they can contribute to the whole and they do that because they respect you. Centurion is saying to Jesus, I know how this goes. I know that if I just tell someone to do something, it gets done. And I am asking you, say something. Because I know it will get done. What is he doing? He's saying, he says, you notice in his language, not I am a man with authority. What's the very first thing he says in verse 8? For I too am a man set under authority. I know to do what I am told to do by those who are higher up even as I know those who are lower than me will do what I tell them to do. Here he is in fact saying to Jesus, I am a man under your authority. I am placing the welfare of my servant under your authority. I am putting everything that's dear to me under your authority. I'm a man people look up to. I'm someone people respect. I'm someone people honor and obey. And, and as you know, those Jewish elders came to you and they, and they probably told you how worthy I am of all this. Let me set the record straight. He says explicitly, I am not worthy. When it comes to me and you, when it comes to the living God, the Messiah of promise, the Lord Jesus Christ, let's all be clear. I have some authority and responsibility in this life. That is not our relationship. I am not worthy. I am not worthy of what I'm asking you to do. I'm not worthy of you coming to my home. I'm not worthy of you hearing my request. I'm saying I'm a man under authority, and as a man who knows, say it and it gets done. All I'm saying is please say something. That will be enough for me. That will be enough for me. Your word. To the extent one can, the centurion many miles away is bowing the knee in his home before Lord Jesus Christ who was on the road on his way. Saying, I'm not worthy. And if you'll just say it, I believe that it will be powerful enough and it will be sufficient for me. Just say the word. The power the centurion recognizes, is in the word of the Lord because of the Lord of the word himself. Nothing more was needed. He illustrates it from his own experience 
and in doing so, he does not convey arrogance. He conveys profound humility because the first thing Luke is telling us in this series of stories right after the Sermon on the Plain, the first thing he is telling us about real, saving, authentic Christian faith is that it begins with actual, real, authentic, dense, rich, thick humility. It begins in the humility that does not demand of the Lord what the Lord has not promised to give, which does not say, I will believe you when, if it is not something the Lord has promised to give, that does not hold Jesus to account rather than ourselves. The humility that says, you say it and that is enough for me, though I don't see you, though you don't do everything I want, though you don't obey my commands, though you obey your own and you act in your own wisdom, not on my terms but on yours. Whatever you do, whatever you say is enough for me. That, Luke is saying, is where Christian faith is rooted. Now, isn't it a, a, a wonderful feature of this whole story, therefore, that says the centurion is not working at all with that kind of dangerous myth that Jesus is his buddy. Or Jesus is his boyfriend, like many songs sometimes suggest. Jesus is his romantic interest or his chummy friend he goes fishing with. Or There is no inappropriate familiarity in the way the centurion speaks about and to the incarnate one. There is deference, there is respect, there is reverence, there is recognition of the higher, highest authority possessed by this one, even as there is also evident confidence in the character of this one. If the centurion is known for his benevolence combined with his authority, he is himself saying, how much more is this true king known for his benevolence as well as his unlimited authority? If I, as a weak man, can command what I want and it happens, and people respect and love me as I do so, as these many do, how much more should this one be adored? for the perfect and infinitely glorious combination that is his power and his goodness. Where unlike so many people we know in this world and hear about on the news, there is no tension in him between limitless power and limitless love. Jesus hears that, just say the word, and he stops. And he doesn't even answer these men who have made their way to him. In fact, in the story, you'll notice the healing itself occupies very little attention. The healing is not Luke's point. It's almost an add-on at the very end of our story. The point of the story is not the healing. The point is this centurion's exemplary faith. Now, here it is, friends. Exemplary. This man's faith is what our faith is supposed to look like. Luke is saying. And so Jesus doesn't answer these friends. Instead he stops 
And he turns around to the crowd of people all around him that have been following him for, for ages now as he gets to Capernaum. They, he, he's talking to the crowd and he says, basically, okay, hold on a second. And Luke tells us one of the few times we ever read of this, that Jesus has an emotional reaction. Sometimes it's translated, he was amazed. Sometimes it's translated, he marveled at him. We don't find many examples of this in, uh, in the Gospels. The only other time, in fact, that we have Jesus sharing his astonishment is when he's angry. He's angry at unbelief, in fact. And he's astonished that there's unbelief. Here he's astonished by the kind of faith this centurion expresses. He is marveling at him. And he shares his astonishment with this crowd to make sure they get the message. And, he, and so he starts by telling the crowd, I tell you, pay attention, he's saying, sit up. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Now, this is not a word of condemnation against Israel. Not yet. That'll come. He's saying that he has found some faith in Israel, but boy, are we talking about a class of its own. Nothing has been as exemplary of what the faith by which the church will forever live looks like than this centurion's faith. I want you not to miss this. I'm telling you, pay attention. Not even in Israel have I seen that kind of faith. The surprising thing, of course, is that a Gentile should have such great faith. Faith that goes beyond even what the Israelites have shown. Now, what is it that this man believed? Merely that his slave would be healed? At least that much. But at work in this confidence, Jesus is recognizing is a trust in him. An acceptance of him as Lord, as true Lord, by one who is an earthly Lord, saying, and he is the true Lord. I am under your authority. As I speak and see things happen, I know you can even more so. Cannot, now, in light of what this man has said, I want us not to miss the, the pathos of the scene. He has just said to Jesus, I speak, things happen. Except for one thing, at least. I can't heal my servant. I can't say something and he's healed. I'm a, I'm a man who gets what he needs when he just says it. But I can't get that. And there's nothing more I want than that. But you, when you speak, it's different. I can't fix my beloved servant. My word is not that powerful. Yours is. How often must this man have visited the room of his slave and servant, watching him, maybe writhing in pain or near death's door, and stand in the doorway and wish he had some way to help here and be effective here, especially when in every other context of his life he wields his power easily. As many wealthy men have known in history, there is an end to the power of their wealth. There are things the dollars cannot do. And however many you have of them will make no difference. You can't buy your child's recovery. You can't buy a fixed marriage. You can't buy the recalling of a rebellious son or daughter. You can't buy your own different diagnosis. 
There's an end to what money can do. There's an end to every earthly resource. And this man has come to his end. And he leans on Christ for only Christ can do by his word. He at least believes that much. Do you? Do you? Is it enough for you that Jesus is who he is and says what he says? Not that we are to trust in character without any expression or in words divorced from character. But given who this is, what he has done, and what he says, is it enough for us? Though we don't get an email later that day from the doctor, my diagnosis was wrong. Though we don't enjoy being spared from the car accident the next week, though we don't receive everything we're sure we need from him. Faith starts with, you know best, you are good, and your word is enough. There are a lot of complicated ways we can explore the riches of the Christian faith. And important ways that we would want to say we mean this and not that when we use such language. And all of that's helpful and important. But they don't, they don't eliminate the simplicity of what is a principle not only of coming to Christian faith, but a principle of Christian life. God is pleased, as we will soon see, to give us things we see, things we feel, things we taste, called the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. He is pleased to condescend to our need for such things and ensure that we have them. He provides for us, in fact, in ways far beyond our wildest imagination and, and often far beyond our acknowledgement and praise and thanks. But for all of that, he is asking us to trust not in the things he might do for us, but in who he is and in his word. And his word is, believe in me and be saved. Believe in me and know life. Rest in me and know relief. Come to me in your weariness and I will give you rest. Luke's message is therefore also a warning away from every counterfeit salvation and every counterfeit savior, which we are pummeled with in all kinds of advertising and marketing in our time. That this or that device or resource or status or whatever the case may be will be the difference maker in making life easier when the good news of the gospel is that we don't in fact know our true need, but that God does, and he has provided for us what we actually need in himself. And his word, unlike anyone else's, can be utterly trusted. And when we come to our end, we come not in despair, 
but we fall at the feet of a loving Savior and we say, just say it and it is enough. May the Lord grant us that faith, which is the faith he calls true faith. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have commanded faith from us, and yet you are so generous as to give the very thing you command. Give us then this faith to which you call us, and by your great grace, we pray that we would grow in it day by day and hour by hour, so that we will, in fact, rest in who you are, in what you have done, and in your life-giving word, and with joy say this is enough. Even as we enjoy and make good use of all the other ways in which you strengthen our faith and encourage us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.